Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Paul Copan, a noted defender of the faith and professor of philosophy at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Paul has authored over a dozen books on apologetics, as well as edited and contributed to many more. He's with me today to discuss this vitally important topic of, in the words of Peter, quote, giving a reason for the hope within. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be with you, Stan. It's been a long time, but uh, glad to reconnect. So good to reconnect with you as well. And I appreciate all the good work you've done in this area we're talking about today, apologetics. So let's dive right in, Paul. Okay. Tell us what is apologetics? Is it apologizing for something? What what What's up with that? It's actually not having to say you're sorry that you're a Christian. Mm. Uh, apologetics uh, comes from the Greek word apologia, which means defense. And uh, Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 says that we ought to be, well, first set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts. Uh, that's where it begins, uh, to set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts and be ready always to give an answer uh, to everyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that lies within us, and thirdly, to do that with gentleness and respect. So that word apologia, you know, give an answer, uh, is in there, that we can give a reason for the hope or give an account for the hope that lies within us. So there is that uh, that dimension of first being connected to Christ, the devotional aspect. And then mm. there's that, uh, that if you will, the intellectual and engaging aspect where we, uh, where we give a reason uh, to people who are asking. And then finally, there's that uh, relational uh, dimension where we do so uh, with gentleness and respect, uh, that apologetics, uh, contrary to what some people assume, or perhaps how some people practice it, it, it is not beating people up for Jesus. Mm. Um, but it is, uh, so it is directed, first of all, toward outsiders, uh, those who are, uh, you know, it, it often comes in that context of giving a reason for why you take the stance that you do. But it's also something that is important for every believer, uh, that it's not just uh, that we give this to someone else, but it can be good for our own selves, our own minds, our own spiritual development, that as we deal with doubts, as we face challenges to the Christian faith, that we uh, that we think through these things for ourselves, that we're better able to articulate those to others. One theologian, Avery Dulles, said that there is a an infidel inside of each of us. Uh, we sometimes have these uh, conversations within ourselves about issues related to the Christian faith and, you know, what about the problem of evil and so on. And so uh, so we need to wrestle with these things ourselves. Dallas Willard uh, said that um, apologetics is really an exercise in doubt removal um, mm. uh, to help people move further along in the path of discipleship or to get onto the path of discipleship. So it's for both uh, those who are outside the Christian faith, but also those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. Mm. So how did you first encounter apologetics and get interested in these questions and answers? Well, my first more formal exposure to apologetics was when I was in high school, and I took a class in uh, Christian apologetics as a, a private Christian high school down in North Carolina. 
at the time. And uh, so it was my first exposure to uh, here's some arguments against the resurrection. Here's some arguments uh, why the resurrection, uh, the bodily resurrection of Jesus makes the best sense of this historical evidence. Uh, and why can we trust the scriptures? Uh, or uh, how do how do Christianity and science uh, connect with each other? So these were some of the things that I started to be exposed to uh, as a teenager, and then it just started to build from there. I took a few, I took a couple of apologetics courses uh, in in college, and then uh, ended up uh, going to Trinity Seminary. Uh, where I studied with William Lane Craig and Stuart Hackett, who had been a mentor uh, to William Lane Craig. And so I got a, a Master of Divinity, but also a Master of Arts in Philosophy of Religion. And then, of course, I studied with you eventually <laughs> uh, at Marquette University. And uh, we had some classes together and uh, and uh, just uh, connected. We carpooled together even, which sure was a lot did. of fun. So, Those were good uh, years. They were indeed. Were indeed. Yeah. So now that you're uh, very skilled in the field, You've written quite a bit, you teach, you lecture, speak around the country and I think even around the world on these issues. What would you say on the other end to those who are just starting to think about these things as students to encourage them to pursue further understanding of apologetics? Now, why is it important students really understand these issues as Christians in a public university context, or even a, a, a private university, secular or or Christian context. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people who are growing up in a Christian environment, they perhaps have heard, uh, you know, from Sunday school uh, into the the you know morning worship uh, service sermons. Uh, you know, they've been exposed to the scriptures. They know the biblical story. They know what Jesus came to do uh, on our behalf. But then a lot of them uh, will encounter challenges that they uh, will, you know, in a, in a freshman philosophy class or a, or a science class uh, in university. And uh, you, we've all heard stories about people who all of a sudden they, they think, Wow, I, can I really trust the Bible? Yeah. Or uh, I only heard one uh, way of thinking about Christianity's relationship to science, and and they mm. have a very perhaps narrow view. And a lot of times, there's almost even a suspicion towards science that they've heard growing up. Right. And so, uh, so they are then thrown f to the lions, as it were, and they have no defenses. They haven't really thought through their Christian faith, and unfortunately, a lot of our youth groups are more like Christian bubbles where you're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed right. to uh, to air some of your own concerns and doubts. And frankly, a lot of youth pastors uh, are not really interested in equipping their uh, students for, you know, to address these intellectual issues. It could perhaps intimidate them. It could scare them. Uh, it makes them uncomfortable. And so they'd rather do, maybe, I don't know, have a Bible study and do uh, maybe pizza and, and paintball stuff, or uh, but not really addressing some of those serious you know, issues to get the, these young young people thinking about their faith and to helping to build proper foundations for addressing those questions about relativism and, and Christianity and science or the problem of evil uh, or uh, just other philosophical assaults on the Christian faith. So uh, so it's, it's very important that we send our students out uh, well-equipped to address those issues and to, uh, and, and creating a culture of thoughtfulness uh, and that mm. begins around the kitchen table, where mm -hmm. we are just uh, asking our own kids 
kids? Uh, you know, what are some of the challenges that you faced in your own, you know, high school classes? What are some of the issues that come up? And we certainly have got six kids. We uh, we've done that around the table, and uh, it's just been important for uh, for them in their own intellectual and spiritual development to have access to uh, to those reasons for the hope that lies within. So so anyway, uh, it, it's it's fundamental if we're concerned about the next generation, if we're concerned about uh, not just our own children, but also the well-being of the church in the next generation. Uh, apologetics is so helpful, uh, not to turn everybody into a philosopher, I mean, but we all are philosophers to some degree. Yeah, right. Lovers of wisdom. That's it. We can't escape issues related to the nature of reality, to knowledge, to right and wrong or ethics. But that's the core of philosophy right there. And we mm -hmm. all have views on it. And so uh, so we want to be more thoughtful as Christians. Uh, and we want to also uh, help to pass on to others the, uh, the benefits uh, and the blessings of the Christian faith, which includes the rich intellectual tradition that the Christian has, mm -hmm. and also reminding our young people that the Christian faith is a knowledge tradition. Mm -hmm. It is not just, oh, I'm just, this is just my faith that I grew up with. And it, it treating it as a, it's kind of a matter of arbitrariness, depending upon where I grew up, rather than, is this true? Uh, and if it's not true, I ought to get on board with what actually is true. And the Apostle Paul, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, a wonderful apologetical text, uh, gives reasons for the bodily resurrection of Jesus and that eyewitnesses were there to visit, uh, to visit with Jesus, to touch him and so forth. Mm -hmm. And that Paul said, if the Christian faith is not true, we ought to abandon it. Uh, that we ought to get in touch with reality. Paul was a realist. Uh, he was not someone who said, well, just as long as it makes me happy or gives me a purpose yeah. in life. Yeah. Paul said, no, if this did not happen, if this historical event did not take place, then uh, purportedly historical event did not take place, then then there is no Christianity. We ought you know, basically just eat, drink, and be merry, uh, you know, or for tomorrow we die. There is no other alternative. We're still in our sins and so forth. So those are some of the things that uh, are important mm -hmm. for uh, for parents to be aware of, for students going into university to be aware of, for youth pastors to be aware of, uh, because the, the challenges to the Christian faith uh, are mounting and, and even dealing with not just some of the common arguments in in relation to traditional apologetics, uh, arguments for God's existence of the resurrection of Jesus. We're also dealing with challenges that relate to sexuality, challenges that relate to, and I, I get this a lot, how could God command the taking of the land of Canaan and so forth? Well, I, I try to address those issues, but that seems to be a, almost a default question. I can't believe in a God who would uh, allow this sort of thing to happen. Well, how do we train our young people to uh, to think through these things and offer answers uh, that are re well-reasoned, that are thoughtful, and that give uh, an alternative perspective uh, rather than just the quick judgmentalism uh, yeah. that is that is so common in our in our generation? Yeah. Well, that was a great apologetic for apologetics. <laughs> I appreciate go. that. You actually made one distinction that I want to highlight. I think it is so important. And that's the distinction between a knowledge tradition and a belief tradition. Mm -hmm. Whereas a belief tradition would be a, 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 a way of approaching an area like the biblical truth claims as, well, that's true for you, but not for me. Those are your beliefs. It's like your favorite flavor of ice cream. You can have that as a personal subjective belief, but it's not knowledge. It's not like what we learn in chemistry, which is right. a paradigm case of a knowledge tradition, right? Where there's mm -hmm. actual truth to the matter. We yeah. can learn. We can be wrong about it. We can teach it to others. And you made the point 
uh, and I am highlighting it, that the Christian faith, the claims made through Scripture are to be understood as a knowledge tradition, as claims about this is the way the world really is. Right. And therefore, apologetics is the process of defending those as true, showing those actually are the way the world is, Mm -hmm. uh, and responding to the skeptics who challenge that. And so I I like that distinction. I think it's central, Mm -hmm. but it's often not brought out. Right, right. Yeah, and I'll give you an example of how that works. Uh, in, In one of my own experiences, I was on a panel discussion probably about seven or eight years ago, uh, it may actually be even 10 years ago, at uh, Florida Atlantic University, just about a half an hour south of us in Boca Raton. Uh, you know, as this panel discussion was on human origins and nature, I was the Christian representative. There is a Buddhist uh, monk, a Muslim imam, a Jewish rabbi, a Seminole Indian, uh, a Hindu, uh, and a voodoo priestess. And they all kind of marched through, gave, we had a brief time to present our views. And the Hindu said, well, Hinduism fits in perfectly with science because it holds to this oscillating model of the universe that it's expanding, contracting, that the universe is infinite. And and so she tried to give her validation for uh, for Hinduism, and I I took my turn, and I said actually the Hindu model you know does not match up uh, with the way things are in modern science. I said the universe began to exist a finite time ago, and uh, there is strong support for that for it, it with a number of p- empirical uh, points of verification. And I said it actually fits very nicely with what uh, Genesis one one says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The universe is not eternal. There's not enough energy to sustain an eternal universe. And then I went on to talk about how you know, we all have grown up in different traditions, uh, and not all of them uh, can be right. We could all be wrong, but they can't all be right because they are fundamentally in contradiction with each other. And the question that we need to ask is, which worldview, which religious tradition, which outlook does the best job of matching up with reality? And I said of the Christian faith actually does a marvelous job of matching up uh, with reality. And uh, and I went on to make a few other points to that effect. Uh, but a lot of people think that, oh, I grew up in this tradition. And they don't ask the question, well, is this tradition actually true? Does it match up with the way things are? And so it's not enough to say this is what I believe. This is what I grew up with. Well, we have to ask the question, should I continue with that tradition because mm-hmm. it's true, or should I abandon it because it's not true? Right. So that's the sort of thing that we need to emphasize. And I find that it's helpful to speak in terms of worldviews, because a lot of times when people say, oh, you, that's just your religion or your religious tradition, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an atheist. And so the assumption is that, oh, you got the burden of proof because you believe in God and I don't. Right. Actually, we all have a worldview. That is a philosophy of life or an outlook on life that is fundamentally a heart commitment. It's not just an intellectual mm-hmm. uh, set of ideas. By the way, my last podcast was on what a worldview is and why a Christian student should develop a, a robust one. So there you go. So I appreciate you bringing that out. Yeah, well, and, and one of the things that I find helpful about speaking of a worldview, again, not something that is detached from the person, the will, the emotions, uh, a personal history, but when we are speaking with someone else who may be an atheist, It's helpful to remember that everyone who makes a claim about a worldview has a burden of proof. It's not just the theist, the believer in God, the Christian, who, oh, you've got a special burden of proof because you believe that stuff and I don't. 
no, you hold to a bunch of stuff too. Let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. And so it actually eases the burden on the Christian when you think in terms of all people having a worldview, everyone being a philosopher, everyone having a philosophy of life. And then you could actually enter into the conversation and offer reasons for it rather than the atheist kind of sitting back with his arms folded and saying, okay, give me your reasons. Well, no, the atheist actually makes claims. The atheist believes that God does not exist. Oh, tell me your reasons for why you think that God does not exist. The burden also falls to you because you make claims and they need to be justified. Yes. Really helpful nuance. Appreciate that. So I'd love to hear some examples, either Christian students you've known that have really turned the corner maybe and some challenges they were experiencing due to their understanding of apologetics, Mm -hmm. maybe some non-believers that you knew who've uh, wrestled with issues and even come to faith through the conversations around apologetic issues. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are uh, lots of stories, thank the Lord. I remember early on, I, I wrote a book uh, called True for You, But Not for Me that came out mm-hmm. uh, in 1998, and there's been a second edition to that. Um, but uh, in its first edition, there was uh, a, a man from a Hindu background who had become a Christian. He said, you know, I just wanted to write to you to tell you that my mother read your book, True for You, But Not for Me, and became a Christian. Uh, wow. Another, you know, or someone who is now in in ministry to Mormons, he said, "I read your book, True for You, but not for me," and became a believer. And now I'm as a Mormon. He read it and he ended up becoming a follower of Christ. Wow. And now he's ministering uh, amidst uh, you know Mormons. I think in Utah, I've done a lot of writing on the topic of Old Testament ethical challenges, warfare, mm-hmm. servitude. I have another book coming out, by the way, that's a follow-up to my book, Is God a Moral Monster? And Did God Really Command Genocide? That was your dissertation topic. That's what you worked on, right? Well, I did stuff on the moral argument. The moral uh, so argument. it was more on, mm-hmm. on, on Michael Martin, the philosophical backdrop to it. But a lot of it comes in handy when you're dealing with these sorts of issues. And so uh, so my forthcoming one coming out next month, actually, uh, is called Is God a Vindictive Bully with Baker? And I deal with another range of uh, issues in there from the imprecatory Psalms to Elisha and the Bears to mm-hmm. warfare and servitude, kind of building on what I've already done yeah. and adding new material. But people have have said, you know, your books have been helpful to keep me in the Christian faith. Uh, They've been such a great resource. Uh, Someone who has her PhD in Old Testament, she was in the midst of her doctoral studies, and she said she was very discouraged. She just felt like the critics were against her and that she really didn't have ground to stand on. And she said to me, your book is God a Moral Monster, helped me to continue with confidence in my Old Testament studies mm. because it was so helpful and nourishing to my faith to see these answers that were made available to me. And so rather than becoming a, a cynic uh, about the Old Testament, she actually is now a, a noted apologist and has done some excellent work herself as a speaker and author and so forth. And so I find that it's been helpful not just to, and as the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga said, uh, not to simply to keep our works in journals and technical books uh, and and let the academics read them, but also to make these resources available to the church, uh, to those who are sitting in the pews, uh, to those mm. who are uh, Christians who have doubts, struggling with their faith. And as as uh, you know, Jude twenty two says, you know that we ought to have mercy on some who are doubting. 
uh, mm-hmm. that there's a ministry of helping those who are doubting. And part of that ministry that I have is to help those who are doubting. And so I, I've been very encouraged by the the books, you know, especially at a popular level that have been helpful to people who have been wrestling with issues, who have been perhaps discouraged in their faith or wondering where are the answers to these sorts of questions. So I'm trying to really deal with uh, some of the toughest questions that are out there so as to really, really be bold and courageous. I mean, it's not my, I'm not someone who temperamentally likes to go out there and duke it out with people and debate everybody and so on. That's, I'm, I'm a bit more, uh, you know, I, you know, laid back and, uh, and it's, uh, it's kind of an intensity for me to get into a, a debates with people. Uh, but I think it is important for us to have these conversations to show that the Christian faith has resources, has answers, uh, and that it can stand up to the critics. And so I hope to, in my writings, show that that's the case. And, and people have over and over again uh, been helped by this. I mean, I get emails all the time, sometimes from parents who say, my child walked away from the faith and uh, and could you please help me to get my child back on track? And so so a lot of it is just going off to university. I trained my child. It's went to Sunday school, went to Christian school, right. and then they go off to university. And then the parents are just stunned that they walked away from the faith in such a short time. Yeah. Uh, so so those are, there are heartbreaking stories, but they're also stories that are very encouraging of parents who are stepping up, uh, realizing that the Christian faith does have answers, and then starting to converse with their children who walked away and seeing them actually come back to the faith. So that, those are very heartening stories as well. Oh, that's great. That's so encouraging to hear so much of the impact you're having. You know, when you write a book, you 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 trust the Lord will use it in that way. And it's yeah. it's it's encouraging, I'm sure, to get the those that feedback to know uh specifics mm-hmm. of how God used that in the lives of folks. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. I I want to raise an objection that you've really already addressed, but I'm gonna put a point on it because mm-hmm. I'm sure listeners, uh some listeners will have this in the back of their minds. It's the idea that, well. Now, the scriptures tell us to have a simple faith, a childlike faith, uh, mm-hmm. not to be dissuaded by these persuasive words of wisdom and this philosophy, but to have a faith just based on our, our relationship to Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, and the people don't come to faith through reason. That is wrong. It's not just not effective. It's just wrong. Mm-hmm. So how do you respond to that very often heard objection? Yeah. Well, a couple of things I would say. Well, there's a lot more I could say than yeah. just a couple. <laughs> um, but take just, for example, from the Bible, uh, the books of Job, as well as Ecclesiastes. Mm. Here you have two very philosophical books that aren't just saying, I've got a relationship with God. That's all I need. There is some mighty wrestling going on with some deep issues that a lot of non-Christians will raise problem of evil in both cases. You know what, for our, for our listeners, why don't you define the problem of evil, just to be sure we're on the same page? Sure. Yeah. When, we, when it comes to the problem of evil, we are talking about the alleged conflict between belief in a God who is all-powerful, all-good, and the existence of evil and often, of course, deep, horrendous evils in the world. And mm-hmm. so uh, the in, in some of the literature, there is the allegation that God and evil cannot coexist in the same world. This is an inherent contradiction. Mm-hmm. Or at best, if it's not a logical contradiction, then the, given the vast amounts of evil in the world, then th- that is sufficient to rule out the likelihood of God's existence. 
And so when we're dealing with issues of God uh, and evil, this brings us to the very uh, books of uh, Job and Ecclesiastes, which raise this issue. Job, of course, uh, an innocent man uh, who is blameless uh, before the Lord, but yet this calamity befalls him. And then his friends accuse him of having, he must have done something wrong. And so it's a, a, a large debate uh, between them and uh, and Job, of course, getting his own, uh, needing his own correction in the end because of his own insistence uh, that he is right and that he knows better uh, and that God could not have a morally sufficient reason for permitting these things to happen to him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so there's this amazing discussion there. And of course, Ecclesiastes there is someone writing probably as a foil for King Solomon, uh, but but speaking as a preacher who is uh, kind of a cynic, actually. Right. You know, look at all the problem of evil in the world. I tried pleasure seeking. I tried to get all of these things. That didn't work for me. Um, what about all of these evils that people face? And it, it it's like you're reading something from a uh, modern philosophical journal. Sure. And, and so, so it's important that we see within Scripture itself that there are philosophical Philosophical discussions already taking place. Mm. Also, when some people will quote these uh, texts from the New Testament, like, yeah, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, or the natural person can't understand the things of the Spirit of God, you know, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. First of all, the problem is not the intellect. It's not the use of reason. The problem is pride, that the cross is an offense to both Jew and and Gentile. And so Paul is saying that faith requires humbling ourselves before God, that God is willing to step into this world to become weak on our behalf, that through death and his resurrection, uh, we have life in the Messiah. But what I tell people when they quote from 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, I'll say, keep reading, please. And you get to 1 Corinthians 15, and you have Paul's robust defense of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that there are eyewitnesses, uh, that these things were, as Paul says in the book of Acts, these things were not done in a corner. Uh, there were eyewitnesses who saw these things, 500 uh, at one time, most of whom were still alive, the implication being you can go and ask them. Another common text is uh, from John chapter 20, where Thomas has uh, finally seen Jesus and touches him uh, and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe. And so people say, look, you don't need reasons. You don't need evidence. Uh, as though Thomas was, uh, you know, really, really bad because he asked for reasons. Uh, of course, the problem with Thomas is that he didn't believe his best friends, those who had been disciples of Jesus along with him, that they said, we have seen the Lord, and Thomas didn't want to believe it. Uh, and and so there is the importance of personal testimony that is also part of the evidential uh, picture here. But more to the point, Jesus, uh, we're told, uh, you know, the very next verse after it says, blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe, it goes on to say, Jesus performed many other signs uh, that weren't related in this book, but these signs, these miracles, these publicly accessible miracles in, in John's day, these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
and that by believing you might have life through his name. So there is this evidence that is being given. And in light of that evidence, the Christian believing in Jesus is, is, is seen as something very intellectually plausible. It is a rational thing. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 10 said, even if you don't believe the things that I say, at least believe on the basis of the signs that, that I'm performing. Right. In Colossians uh, chapter two, you know, beware of philosophy. Yeah, that is philosophy that is detached from the knowledge of Christ. That's the problem. It's not philosophy itself. Uh, in fact, uh, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said Paul would have been considered a Jewish philosopher in his first century setting. Mm. Uh, and and uh, Ben Witherington, a New Testament scholar, said Paul was in the top two percent of the intellectual elite of his day. That mm. Paul was really at the top of his, uh, you know, in his own culture. He came from Tarsus, an intellectual center. It was, he, it was no insignificant city. So Tarsus, Athens, and Alexandria were the top three intellectual centers of Paul's day. And Paul was very familiar with the philosophies of his own day. He goes to Athens, he challenges people, but was also presenting the centrality of Christ. So he's reasoning with people. He is like another Socrates coming to Athens. And the very language from Plato is being utilized by Luke to talk about Paul being this philosopher philosopher coming into Athens mm -hmm. who is uh who is in the marketplace he is presenting uh, a new teaching and some accuse him of of these teaching of strange or foreign deities uh and that Paul is dialoguing with them uh th these are all you know it, it's it's all language that's related to what Socrates was doing so well and even back to earlier point there is a dialogue of Socrates called the apology his defense exactly that's where it appears that's right and even John in First John chapter one says, "You know that which is from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which our hands have touched. Mm -hmm. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life." So he is very much in tune with the empirical evidence. And Jesus Himself, after He's been raised from the dead, He says, "Touch me and see that a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have." So anyway, there is that empirical demonstration. In mm -hmm. fact, mm -hmm. Paul was accused in one of his defenses, his apology. Uh, he says, you know, your your great learning has driven you insane. Right. Uh, so so Paul's Paul's this great learned man, uh, but yet he's you know, but he's just you know gone overboard with this Jesus stuff. Uh, so you see, the book of Acts itself actually shows us that the Christian faith is rooted in objective reasons and evidence, and the apostles themselves say we cannot stop speaking about the things that we have seen and heard. That's so helpful. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. If you are like most of our listeners, you are concerned about the ideas being promoted in our universities today. We too often hear about what is false and even harmful being promoted as true. Christian professors are called to stand up for what is true, good, and just, and teach their students to do the same. Help equip Christian professors to do so at www. Global-scholars.org. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this college faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to College Faith. I sure like a number of distinctions you made, but especially the one between reason and pride. 
that was my story. I mm-hmm. I came to faith through apologetics, but postponed the decision quite a while because of pride and hedonistic pleasures uh, that were all tied up together. And it wasn't until God, through the reasons that I was being given by a friend to answer my objections, God used those in significant ways to help me realize that this is more important than my own pride or, you know, what I want to do. But it was really those apologetic questions that got my or answers that got my attention uh, in the first place. Yeah. yeah, it's nice to be able to attest to that, too, that mm-hmm. uh, it was more than just uh, taking a, a leap saying, yeah, I've got I've got faith. But what are the reasons behind it? Well, I don't have any. Uh, you were one who had to reason it through. You had to think it through. And mm-hmm. those reasons were uh, the Lord used those reasons. Again, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, they talk about, oh, where does the Holy Spirit in all this? Well, the Holy Spirit uses these reasons. It's not as though it's detached from it. Exactly. Uh, you know, the Holy Spirit, he is one who is at work, whether it be through a personal crisis, through the reading of the scriptures, uh, through uh, thinking through uh, the arguments for the Christian faith or the resurrection and so forth, that these can also be part of how God persuades us. In fact, even when it says that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, well, yes, it's foolishness to all of us in some way that we we are not naturally seeking after God in our own fallen condition, mm-hmm. that we are ones who therefore need the prompting of God's Spirit, and He can use a whole array of things to get our attention. Uh, in fact, a friend of mine, Jenna Harmon, uh, she has a PhD from the University of Birmingham, and she has a podcast called Side B Stories. She interviews one former atheist after another, asking, why did you become a believer? And, 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 and a large chunk of that is, I started to see the very good reasons there are for believing. Mm-hmm. So the Holy Spirit can use that like he does crises, as I said, you know, the love of other Christ, uh, of Christians, and that, that really persuades them about the reality of the gospel. So whatever it is, uh, you know, there's a whole array of things that uh, that God can use to to speak to us. Absolutely. All right, Paul, let's drill down a little bit into uh, more specifics. What would you say are the most important apologetic topics to understand today? Yeah. Well, of course, the the one that uh, always lingers uh, is the problem of evil. I'd mm-hmm. say that that is the top question. It, of course, it has different manifestations, too. Sure. It's not just there is one philosophical problem of evil and everybody goes to talk about that. Uh, the the problem of evil can be you know, articulated in maybe what about those who've never heard of Jesus? If Jesus is the only way. What about the unevangelized? Well, that is a form or a species of the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, why isn't God more obvious? Uh, the hiddenness of God is another species of the problem of evil. It's another uh, another topic. It's another category within that uh, right. uh, that under that rubric. Um, what I do, uh, and again, this is a an issue that I'm you know, I do a lot of speaking on, and it deals with Old Testament ethical challenges, the problem of evil in the scriptures. Uh, you know, how do we make sense of 
uh, servitude. How do we make sense, especially uh, this hot topic, uh, warfare in the Old Testament? And mm-hmm. so, uh, so I am uh, addressing that on a regular basis. Did God really command genocide? And I, the answer is no. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! <laughs> uh, that that's uh, and, and so I'm I'm giving reasons for that and, and showing, for example, that uh, that when you read, you know, utter utter destruction, however that's to be translated, there's uh, you know there are different ways of rendering that. Uh, but uh, uh, but you know there are cases where it, it's clearly hyperbole or exaggeration that was a common rhetorical device in the ancient Near East, kind of like our modern day sports trash talk. Like we totally destroyed those guys, we utterly annihilated them. Uh, well, you'd have something similar going on in the ancient Near Eastern war texts, where even though hmm. there could be just a, a narrow victory, you know, Pharaoh will say, "I utterly destroyed them." Uh, you know, there is not a survivor. They tur- were turned to ash. And so that's a, a common, a common theme. And so I try to bring the, out that and other, mm. uh, you know, and other responses to that. So again, the problem of evil, I'd say, is the, the main issue. Uh, where we have to, uh, like you say, drill down and, uh, and and be able to better articulate the Christian faith in light of those specific objections. Mm-hmm. Also, I think we're seeing, uh, I think, some more visceral responses to the the Christian faith uh, based on the biblical, I'd say, you know, historical, traditional understanding of sexuality. If you don't deviate from that understanding, you are seen as narrow-minded, bigoted. It's a lot of ad hominem or attacking the person sorts of arguments. Right. Uh, so you you get a lot of th- those things. I spend I have I teach a worldview class uh, here at Palm Beach Atlantic University. It's called Christian Values Biblical Faith. It's a senior capstone class. Every senior has to take it. Mm. And uh, one of the topics that we talk about is sexuality. So I will talk about homosexuality. I'll talk about the trans issue. I'll talk about gay marriage and uh, putting it in biblical perspective. And of course, that's the uh, the stance that we take as a Christian university. Unfortunately, a lot of you know, a number, some Christian universities are capitulating on these things, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a great tragedy. And, uh, and so, mm-hmm. but I, I see it as important to equip people to think through these issues and to uh, have a proper foundation and also to show that the Christian faith can stand up to these sorts of objections. And in fact, uh, I had someone in the class uh, last semester who was taking issue with some of the things that I was saying, and I was offering responses back and putting these things in proper perspective. And a couple of the students were talking to me after one of the classes, and they said, you know, so helpful for us to see modeled before us how you can intelligently respond to these sometimes visceral objections. Mm-hmm. And put them in their proper perspective to lay out some certain issues uh, that are uh, you know that are important for us to understand. And I think one thing when it comes to the sexuality issue is so often there is no broader context for understanding sexuality than the mere assertion of preference. Right. And what I'd like to do is unpack and say, well, you know, why is one preference? more valuable than any other? Uh, What is the moral framework from which you are arguing? What is the moral foundation on which you're building this? Because if marriage is simply, or sexuality is simply a social construct, then there is ultimately no right or wrong on this. It's simply a matter of what society has fabricated. And in the past, society constructed or fabricated the traditional model 
uh, and you're 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 constructing another one. But there is no intrinsic superiority over any of that you know, of any of them if they're simply constructs. And so it's good for students to understand those sorts of things. Oh yeah. And it takes a lot of the wind out of the sails of the accusers, at least if they're willing to talk about it. Sure. Uh, to to actually if. be able to have, yeah, exactly, uh, <laughs> to be able to articulate those types of things. So that's an example of some of the the issues where we have tussles. I think another area, and uh, Scott McKnight, he wrote a, a co-authored a book a few years uh, ago uh, called "Walking Away from the Faith," uh, and he he said that at the t- very top of the list in terms of reasons why that he had found why people walk away from the Christian faith is the alleged discrepancy between the Christian faith and science. Mm. And so I'm often hitting hard on that as well. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I co, co-edited a book called The Zondervan Dictionary for Christianity and, of Christianity and Science, and also a Three Views book that I co-edited uh, called uh, Three Views on Christianity and Science. And as you look at these issues, you start to see, oh, you know what? Uh, those alleged conflicts uh, are really uh, not there. Uh, a lot of them are simply uh, maybe in-house debates between Christians. Right. But when it comes to the broader scientific community and a lot of Christians you know, who are solid, sound, Bible-believing Christians, they connect very well with the Christian faith and science. There is no inherent conflict. And it's important for us to understand that the founders of modern science were largely dedicated, Bible-believing, miracle-believing Christians. Uh, right. They were ones who were uh, leading the charge in showing that the universe is a creation from by a rational God who puts things in order, gives to us minds to understand uh, this uh, this order uh, has allowed us to to study uh, the the world that he has made and to draw conclusions about it to live within it to send people to the moon to build bridges and so forth. Right. These are part of the gifts that God has given to us. Uh, so so there is no uh, no intrinsic disconnect uh, between the Christian faith and science, and we need to understand part of our history. And in fact, that that alleged conflict model that Christian faith and science are are, are inherently in conflict has been rejected by sure. historians of science. They recognize sure. that that is just a, came up in the late 1800s and really uh, did not have any intellectual weight behind it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, Paul, let's say a student's listening to this mm-hmm. and she says, okay, I'm convinced. I've got to start thinking about some of these things a little more and reading some apologetics and uh, maybe having some conversations with, with others. Where does she start? What's her first step as a believer? To start to get her head around some of the core apologetic issues that she should know for herself, for her faith journey, but also to be able to engage her her friends and maybe even bring it into issues in her classes that she's reading about or writing papers about. Right. Well, a few places that would be helpful for starters, I think. J.P. Morland and I and a couple of others, we co-edited a study Bible called the Apologetic Study Bible. And... That is just a brief introduction to a lot of issues, both in the articles in the study Bible, mm-hmm. as well as the, you know, the the textual notes in each of the books of the Bible that are directed toward particular apologetic issues. So, so it has something to really uh, latch on to, and then to to say, oh, I really want more. That article is helpful, but boy, I really want to do yes. more. And so, so I, I'd, I'd offer a few complimentary uh, suggestions as well. Uh, one is, in fact, this is kind of an easy uh, click on uh, a link. Uh, it's called the Worldview Bulletin. Uh, my mm. colleague at Palm Beach Atlantic University, Paul Gould, and I 
We are part of the Worldview Bulletin team, and it is a worldview bulletin that looks at the Christian faith, Christian apologetics, how to think Christianly about issues related to, uh, you know, sexuality, uh, technology, uh, you know, arguments for God's existence, you know, also are part of that. But it's a whole range of topics that enhance our thinking Christianly about issues and to better articulate the relevance of the Christian faith when it comes to the arts, when it comes to technology, when it comes to mm. science and so on. So that's just an easy kind of click on. Yes, put me on the list. Uh, It comes out twice a month. And uh, we have people who are theologians, biblical scholars, philosophers who are contributing to it. So it really is a treasure house of of material in in the archives that will be very uh, a great resource. Sure. Uh, Also, I try to write books at a very uh, popular level. So I've done books like True for You, But Not for Me. Uh, That's just your interpretation. How do you know you're not wrong when God goes to Starbucks? You know, when, you know, my moral monster book is God a Moral Monster. Um, in my forthcoming book is God a Vindictive Bully. These are written expressly for people who want to step in, might be a little daunting for them to okay. step into apologetics, but each chapter in these books is self-contained, uh, has, you know, in most of the books, I uh, have bullet points at the end summarizing the main points. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, uh, so anyway, but that, that's something, another great, uh, a great resource that I think is uh, to point people to is um, our our friend, William Lane Craig's uh, website, reasonablefaith.org, mm-hmm. uh, where it has videos, uh, podcasts, question of the week, uh, articles, uh, animated videos that lay out arguments for God's existence of the resurrection of Jesus and so forth. So very helpful, very accessible. Uh, of course, Bill Craig is a, a, a terrific intellect. And so you can mm-hmm. you, you can go as far as you want within that, <laughs> you know, to, to articles that he has written for uh, technical philosophical journals and, and so forth. So there's a lot there. And so there's some excellent places to step into, uh, but that's just a, a brief uh, overview of where you can at least uh, begin to plug in. Mm. If you want to even do studying, uh, if you want to study apologetics, we have now just started an undergraduate uh, degree in uh, apologetics at Palm Beach Atlantic University here in South Florida. Great. If you want to go beyond that, if you've already had an undergrad degree, come study with us at our Master of Arts in Philosophy of Religion program, uh, which is just in its second year, but we have Paul Gould, uh, mm-hmm. uh, well-recognized Christian author, apologist. He wrote a book called Cultural Apologetics. Brandon Rickabaugh, who is, uh, uh, you know, has his doctorate from Baylor University, is co-authoring a book with uh, J.P. Moreland now, and has uh, got two other books in the pipeline. And just such a, you know, he's also teaching spiritual formation here uh, mm. at Palm Beach Atlantic University. So we really believe in the importance of not just preparing people intellectually uh, to go into not just PhD programs uh, from our master's program, but also to go into church ministries, campus ministries like uh, Ratio Christi or uh, InterVarsity, et cetera, uh, or also to go, you know, it's also strongly emphasizing the importance of cultural engagement. So it's a public-facing mm. degree. So we have courses in, in, in public philosophy, philosophy, technology, and ethics, philosophy, and literature, uh, issues, in, contemporary issues in philosophy. So there's a, a lot that, that we're offering there that is very unique within a Christian university setting. So please come and study with us. We'd love to have you. Great. I want to circle back to something you started with and ask you for some tips on that. You talked about mm-hmm. the importance of apologetics from the first Peter 3.15 passage of always right. being ready to make that defense, but to do it with gentleness and respect. And right. both are so important to to have mm-hmm. the content, to know the arguments, but to communicate those in a way uh, that's winsome and is attractive and inviting to people. So right. 
help uh, help us think about maybe some tips of how once students start to understand these issues and have some good reasons for their faith and get any conversations with their peers mm-hmm. or even their professors, mm-hmm. either in office hours or in papers mm-hmm. uh, or their parents or relatives, mm-hmm. how can they make sure they are engaging these in these conversations with gentleness and respect? Yeah, uh, a couple of very basic things that are easy to do that are not intimidating uh, is to, first of all, just be a good listener. Mm. Just say, hey, you know, you're an atheist, you know, maybe a professor or uh, someone who's maybe had an undergrad degree in uh, in in philosophy and uh, and thinks that he knows everything or she knows everything uh, as an atheist. Uh, you know, just you're the expert on atheism. Why don't you tell me about how you came to these sorts of conclusions? You know, tell me and maybe tell me a little bit about your story. Yeah, I grew up in the church and yeah, they may say some of those things or, oh, I've never just I've never seen any good arguments for God's existence. That's why I'm an atheist or something like that. And so as you hear these things, you're able to, well, for one thing, just build your own store of credit uh, with that person. The longer you listen, the more you're accruing credit to be listened to in return. Uh, James, uh, you know, chapter one says, let everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow mm-hmm. to become angry. Uh, unfortunately, we often reverse the first two. We're very quick to speak, <laughs> very slow to listen. And it's very, uh, it's critical for us to to be listeners. And so often we want to jump in with the answers before we understand what the question is, before we understand mm-hmm. where the person is coming from. There may be deep hurts. There may be uh, some trust issues that uh, that they have to, had to work through or still working through. And uh, and it's and it's easy to sound very glib when you're just offering quick apologetical answers and you haven't really heard the questions. You haven't heard some of the cries of the heart uh, that are coming from uh, the people who are saying why they've walked away from the faith uh, or why they reject the Christian faith. I'm going to jump in real quick as I hear this all the time. And and I've I've been guilty of it. I have to catch myself when in conversations about the problem of evil, because mm-hmm. sometimes people are asking about that because they've got a philosophical conundrum. How do I put mm-hmm. together an all-powerful, all-loving God with with evil? Okay, great. Let's yeah. talk about that mm-hmm. in terms of the arguments that can be given. But sometimes it's really because they've just lost a parent mm-hmm. or exactly. some other major ca- catastrophe, and they're mm-hmm. really not asking, give me a philosophical answer at this mm-hmm. point. They'll get there. Right. But right now, they're they're just wanting somebody to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's what C.S. Lewis distinguished between the intellectual or philosophical problem of evil and the emotional or pastoral problem of evil. And right. so so being a good listener is part of being a good, uh, you know, responding well to the pastoral or emotional yeah. problem of yeah. evil. And so so I think first hearing the story, being empathetic uh, is going to be critical. And, and, and I think the relationship is also important, whether it's evangelism or apologetics. Relationships are important. Mm. Sometimes, when there's a, a little bit of a kind of a debate uh, on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, I'll just sometimes say, "Hey, why don't you let you want to have a Zoom call over this? Do you want to have a conversation over this? I think this is not a productive way to have a a back and forth when you've got just a limited number of characters to get out. Right. Uh, you know, if you want to touch base with me, I'd be happy to, you know, you just contact me through my website, paulcopan.com, et cetera. And so I'll often have conversations with people who do want to come back to me and ask, 
you know, hey, I really want to get to the bottom of this. Can you can we talk about it? And sometimes it's just a, a one time conversation. Other times it, it, it carries on and, and turns out to be very fruitful. And at least the people know wherever it ends up going. <clears throat> they know that they've been listened to. They've had right. uh, their their questions are being taken seriously. The the, the issues that are weighing heavily on their heart uh, are not being passed over just to get to the intellectual uh, concerns. So those are sure. those are some things that I find helpful uh, when it comes to just being a good listener, uh, building up that credit. But also being a good listener gives you an opportunity to analyze and assess what's going on. Uh, so when a person says, you know, I'm an atheist because I haven't, uh, I don't think their arguments for God's existence work. Um, I'll say, well, actually, you should probably be an agnostic uh, because, you know, even if, you know, if you're an atheist, you got to do more than just say the arguments for God's existence don't work. You've got to actually give positive reasons for sure. why atheism is true, why yeah. why God does not exist. That's a that's a you're making a, a certain uh, truth play that needs to be justified. Right. The burden of proof issue again. Exactly right. So, so you know, so as you're th- as you're listening, you're kind of you're able to assess better. You maybe you can ask questions. Remember, Jesus often asked questions in response to questions mm-hmm. that he was asked mm-hmm. uh, to get people to think through their assumptions, uh, to uh, to maybe def- help define their terms because they may be using terms that are loaded. Right. Uh, you know, and like when a person says, "I can't believe in a God who would allow all this evil in the world." Okay. Well, maybe you could. Tell me what you understand evil to be. I think that would be a helpful starting point. Obviously, evil, if you take it in any sort of objective sense, it's not just, oh, I I don't like this. But evil is a departure from the way things ought to be. And if God does not exist, why think anything ought to be the way that it is? Things just are what they are. But if you're talking about the way things ought to be, you're talking about a kind of a design plan, Mm -hmm. uh, a blueprint for uh, the way things are, and that, as C.S. Lewis said, you can't judge something to be crooked unless you have an idea of what a straight line is. And so when I talk about the problem of evil, I'll often use the example of, say, counterfeit money. Uh, you know, you can't have counterfeit money without real currency. You can have real currency without counterfeit money, but counterfeit money makes no sense unless there is real currency. Mm-hmm. And then the problem of evil, evil makes no sense unless there is a kind of design plan or pattern uh, or standard of goodness. So anyway, those are the sorts of things that often come out as you're listening, as you're talking. You can assess, evaluate, gives you time to think. And you can also say, you know, you've really given me a lot of good things to think about. Can we get back on this mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and carry on a conversation? So you don't have to feel like, oh, I've got to answer all of these questions right now. Right. Sometimes you just go back to go back to a book, uh, go back to someone who's got a little more experience than you do. Sure. So rather than being intimidated, oh, I can't. I've got to. I've got to be a philosopher in order to engage with people. No, you don't. Just be a good listener and then start there, and then you can have some really profitable conversations and learn as you go. Right. Well, I could chat with you about this for hours, but uh, neither you nor I have uh, have that opportunity. Our listeners probably don't want to listen that long. So let's draw to a close. And as we do, is there anything else you want to make sure we touch on? Yeah. Well, I think we've hit a lot of the issues when I'm asked about apologetics. Uh, a lot of the main uh, categories, the main, a lot of the main concerns uh, that uh, that come up. Stan, you've been an excellent moderator, a questioner. Uh, you've been a good listener. And, uh, and and so thanks very much for the opportunity. Thanks, Paul. Well, then let me end with this question. Mm-hmm. You've already alluded to a few, but where can listeners go to get more information as their interest is hopefully peaked on this topic? Yeah. 
Uh, well, as, as I, I'll just uh, repeat a couple of things and maybe add a little bit more. Um, so if you need to uh, connect uh, on some particular issue, my website is paulcopan.com, and you'd also see some of the re- you know, some of the resources uh, from me, books and so forth, uh, which are also translated into a number of different languages as well. So that may be helpful if you're an international and want to get into some of these uh, you know, pieces of writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, you know, would encourage you to subscribe to the Worldview Bulletin. Uh, you can subscribe for free. Uh, you can pay a little bit uh, also and get more content. But the basic package is just you know, going to be very helpful for you. I would encourage you to to get involved. There's a, a William Lane Craig has been uh, head of reasonablefaith.org, this organization that has reasonable faith groups. There may be a mm-hmm. local apologetics chapter. So just check out reasonable faith chapters in your area just by going to the website. Those are some basic places to start uh, and uh, just wish you well as you are maybe just exploring apologetics, uh, that God will give you much uh, grace, give you courage uh, in uh, sometimes a very hostile climate uh, to to stand up for the truth, to put on the full armor of God, uh, and that uh, that you will be used by the Lord to bring people to a greater understanding of the Christian faith and to proclaim it boldly themselves. So so great to mm. be with you. Thanks, Stan, for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed our time together. Well, I have too. I think these are some great words of encouragement and exhortation to our mm. listeners. Appreciate those words. And I appreciate not only you earlier referencing worldviews, which was my last topic, but uh, unbeknownst to you, my next topic will be on spiritual formation. So okay. a little... little uh, foreshadowing of that conversation that listeners can tune into as soon as that posts. So okay, <laughs> thanks for the good. plug, even Excellent. though you didn't yeah, know absolutely. it. <laughs> so that's great. This is great. Thanks again for your time, your ministry, your writing, your teaching, uh, and just some time to come on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Stan. God bless you and your work that you're doing too. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.